Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, the Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is about Silicon Valley Bank. And it's sort of a part two to our last episode where we touched on this. Um, so we'll focus on what's going on now in the banking world and how to think about this in the context of the venture ecosystem. And normally we have an investor on the show. Today we don't. We only have one of our founders, mainly because uh, a lot of our investors sit on the boards of banks and they can't speak about this stuff publicly. So Mark and I have spoken to many of them over the past few weeks, and we'll just be filling in for that part of it. And we're really lucky to have Mark, who's one of our portfolio company founder and CEOs on the show today. So Mark, I'll let you introduce yourself and, and then we can kick it off from there. Absolutely. Paige, thank you first of all for, for having me. My name is Mark Shackneys. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Nifty Door. Um, we're a relatively new startup that provides uh, digital home equity lend, uh, loans for um, other mortgage bankers. Awesome. Um, and maybe also, can you share some background on yourself prior to Nifty Door? Because you're a two-time founder and, and I think you have a pretty unique background for this conversation. Yeah. So uh, my, my, the three pillars kind of of my career have always been uh, real estate, which is my core passion. I just, I like to think that real estate flows through my veins, uh, finance, and then technology. And more recently, you know, you've seen prop tech and fintech become these, you know, confluence of, of these industries and leveraging technology. But for me, I, I started my career just in the nuts and bolts side of, of both finance and real estate. And was always very frustrated by the lack of adoption of these, you know, efficient technologies. And so really made it just a, a, a primal purpose to bring that innovation both to real estate and now to the mortgage world. Awesome. Um, okay, so maybe we can start by just talking about what happened with the Silicon Valley Bank situation, although I feel like everyone in the world knows now. Um, but I'll just recap it and maybe Mark, you can fill in if you think I'm missing anything important here, but obviously Silicon Valley Bank had some loans out that were 10 year loans. They were, interest rates were low. So when interest rates went up, those loans became worthless. And ultimately they had a situation where there was sort of a unfortunate bank run where a lot of people were taking money out of the deposits and they had to sell some of those loans in order to you know, get their balance sheet back to where it was, sell them at a loss. So it was a big, it was a big issue for them and it happened very quickly. And um, I think they had something like 40 billion of deposits came out in a 24 hour period before the FDIC stepped in. But um, I don't know, anything important you think I missed there? No, I think that that's all spot on. And, and what's I think sort of eye opening for the whole, you know, SVB near catastrophe uh, was that a couple things. One, everybody knew that all these banks had these, you know, unrealized losses on their books. And people were talking about this, this concept of zombie banks for a long time. Um, but as a result of the global financial crisis, you know, they instituted policies that allowed you to book things as whole to maturity and not recognize those losses. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Silicon Valley had created a tremendous exposure for itself. And all of those securities, which, by the way, this was not a credit issue. This, is, this was a duration issue and not, you know, appropriately, you know, managing their, their interest rate exposure and their, um, frankly, the depository base was highly concentrated with VCs and founders. Yeah. So you kind of had this perfect storm that was just waiting for a lightning bolt to set off a forest fire. And yeah. unfortunately, SVB was the, 
the, the name that we're all going to remember for a long, long time. Uh -huh. um, and in, in a weird way, it's, it's a testament to their own success because they were started 40 years ago with the simple and important mission that, you know, R&D is a critical part of our economy and we need to support these founders and VCs for this thriving R&D ecosystem and innovation economy. And they did a phenomenal job for 40 years. My previous company um, banked with them. I personally bank with them. And even though Nifty Door does not directly bank with them, a lot of our vendors do. So for example, yeah. Rippling, which is an HR, HR provider, as well as many other vendors. So it's a deeply interconnected ecosystem. Yeah. And um, you know they got caught exposed. And unfortunately, because the depositor base is so highly concentrated, and, and frankly, a lot of people, it's a lot of group think, and everybody follows the same guys on gals on Twitter. So when Peter Thiel basically cried fire in the in the proverbial movie theater, yeah, a few yeah. hours later, forty two billion dollars later, um, the bank was shut down. I mean, this is really, you know, the Fed stepped in and we avoided what honestly would have been a catastrophe. But the adrenaline is still pumping in people's veins. And I think there's obviously a lot of learned lessons there. Yeah. I was honestly very surprised that they, as nervous and anxious as I was with half of our portfolio companies bank with Silicon Valley Bank, we don't, thankfully. But that one weekend where no one knew it was going to happen, that very one anxious weekend, I was 100% sure that they were going to get bought and they would be a new bank on Monday. And it's kind of surprising to me that that didn't happen. I wonder if you have a perspective on it, but I know obviously the FDIC decides who buys it. They didn't want a large bank to buy it. They didn't want a PE firm to buy it. And now they're going down this other path of sort of like trying to rebuild themselves on their own, I think. I don't, it doesn't sound like there is going to be a buyer. Um, yeah, that, that was definitely interesting too, because um, typically over the weekend, these people get in a room and figure this stuff out so that there's confidence back in the system Monday morning and really before the Asian markets open. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, banking is such an interesting thing that in one regard, it's boring and nobody wants to think about until crises happen. And all of a sudden people are picking it apart and trying to understand it. But at the core of the banking system, when you put your money into a bank, it's not sitting there, right? The money multiplier and the, the reserve currency, it, it, for every dollar you put in, it's being lent out 10 times. Mm -hmm. So if everybody came and asked for their money on the same day, guess what? Your money's not there. But before you freak out, the what holds it together is trust. And you know that was that's what got violated for those 72 hours. I mean, I was in pure panic mode, not only for my own personal exposure and our company's exposure. A lot of my founder friends were deep in it. I mean, this was this was a real panic. Yeah. Um, and I was expecting them to find a buyer. I think obviously the government said we don't want any of the GSIBs, which are the, the, the five uh, too big to fail banks to step in. So that really said, OK, it's got to be another community bank. But the problem is, I think they're actually exposing one of the huge problems for community banks and, and actually SVB as well, which is if you have concentration risk, right, mm -hmm. that's that needs to be managed really, really well. So if you say like, well, look at like Navy Federal Credit Union or USAA, they are fundamentally community credit unions, but they serve a military kind of cohort, which is all over the world. And it's actually quite diversified. But yeah. Silicon Valley Bank was an elite bank for VCs and founders. So how do you diversify that risk going forward? I actually listened to Tim Minopoulos's 
um, speech to stakeholders that Monday morning. And I have a lot of respect for the guy. Um, and I think he means well. But one of the things he said was he said, look, guys, please trust us again because it's business as usual. Oh. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if that's how I'd phrase this. I think a better way to have said it was, hey, look, guys, we've been here for 40 years supporting you. We gave it our best. We, owned, we, we fell under our own weight. And uh, what we're going to do differently moving forward is we're going to diversify and yeah. we're going to be a better bank in the future. And actually a huge uh, parallel that I think is really interesting is, you know, in the late 1800s, uh, there was a bank uh, that was serving immigrants in California and it was for Italians and it was called the Bank of Italy. And when they grew too big for Italians, they said, hey, other immigrants are hardworking and creditworthy people, too. So they decided to bank with the Chinese and others. They later, after 40 years, decided to rebrand themselves. And the new name was Bank of America, which today is a GSIP. That's right? a great story. So this is an opportunity. They need to take this crisis and they need to reposition themselves. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, VCs and founders are not diversified at all. You know, less than two percent are minority less than or two percent are female less than one percent are minority of of female minorities it's it's damn near close to zero percent that's yeah. a fundamental problem why don't why don't they rename themselves the diversity bank and position themselves to go beyond what their starting cohort was because like for better or worse they have the world's attention right now they are in the front page of every single newspaper parlay that attention and really use it to position themselves for something incredible and go beyond what they're original. And you don't have to turn your back on founders and VCs. You just need to diversify. That's such a great point. I mean, they have such a huge opportunity in front of them right now to make decisions and let the entire world, get the entire world audience's attention for those, yeah. those changes because they want to make. Yeah. At the core of their organization, they have phenomenal people. You know, I will only say the best things about all the relationship people and support people and the operations people. These are people that they believe in their mission. They're so client centric. They will bend over backwards for you. So, you know, any organization at its core is its people and they have that part right. But just like in life, we begin as newborns, we become adolescents and toddlers and, and young, middle and aged adults. The same is true for companies. So I think yeah. what worked for them for the last 40 years, there's no question they need a change. So business as usual should not be their mandate. It yeah. should be, you know, a better bank of the future, whatever that may be. Yeah. So are you suggesting that they should, they could, or I don't even know if they, if Tim said this in his speech and that's where you're getting it from, if in terms of what, that they are planning to diversify, have they said no. anything about, okay. This no, is they just didn't say that at all. So okay. I'm basically giving him my two cents, which was, he said it's going to be business as usual. Yeah. Okay, and I, said, I don't know if that's the story you want to yeah. be sharing. You know, there's an opportunity here to do a better job. And, you know, we live in a, in a society where there's great awareness of, of some of the problems. And so this is where crises actually have the silver lining to a crisis is you have people's attention and yep. you have energy and you have motivation. So how do you bundle that all up? and then really propel yourself forward. And I think that's the opportunity ahead of them. And why should, I mean, of any bank to be able to do this, Silicon Valley Bank should be able to do it. They've got some of the smartest companies and people supporting them. So don't tell me business as usual, please. It's the last yeah. thing I want. 
Yeah. So do you think that they can, they could diversify? I guess I would just wonder, you know, them being so venture focused, which is a unique market and required them to do unique things, which is why so many people banked with them because there aren't a lot of banks that have focus in that area, really. I mean, there are some others, but obviously Silicon Valley Bank's the biggest. So they could, if they diversified in terms of the types of founders or the types of businesses, are you suggesting they'd still stay in that venture ecosystem or diversifying more in terms of like, I don't know, working with non-venture backed businesses or focusing on other lines of, I don't know, customer personas that aren't I'm, that. I'm definitely not saying you never have to leave your original cohort. It's not like Bank of America when they flipped their name said we no longer bank Italians, right? They were right. allowed to take Italian business and Chinese business and Latin and, and everybody else. Um, but I think there's just an opportunity to go beyond their original pillar, right? And even if you look at, um, take JP Morgan, which is on the, you know, the biggest of all, JP Morgan does uh, tech banking, both from a depository and operational side, as well as venture debt. They recognize it's an important cohort. They want to be deeper in it. There are other banks that also have really over the years seen the success of Silicon Valley Bank and decided to, to replicate it for their, for their own. So I don't think you need to you know, swing the pendulum from one extreme to the other. I think it's more of just like, let's recognize that um, you know, having $200 billion of deposits where 97% of them were not insured. And that was required as a covenant of doing business with them. I yeah. don't think that's a sustainable business practice if we're being honest. It certainly led to their success but as I said, they had too much success. Too much of a good thing is is not a good thing, right? So um, yeah. where do they go from here? I don't know, but I, I think there's a huge opportunity ahead of them. They just need to to be careful this time. So one question I had, and I'm, I'm curious if you know anything about this, because I dug in on this when it was all happening. Coincidentally, for K Street, we were looking at, we were looking at banks um, the two weeks leading up to this incident and we looked very closely at Silicon Valley Bank and we looked at five other banks. We ended up choosing PacWest. And and one of the things that we found out that we really liked is there's this ICS sweep deposit option that you can have on these accounts where you can insure them up to whatever the bank is doing. So like I think Mercury does up to five million that gets yep. up to IC secured. Um, PacWest is up to a hundred and fifty million. And to me that makes a ton of sense, especially if you're a, a venture manager. And you've got large deposits coming in from capital calls that you're going to be deploying. Like, don't you know? It, I, in my mind, I was like, and I know Silicon Valley offers this too. So I was thinking, like, why? Why was 97 percent of their deposits not insured? It doesn't make sense to me. Like, were people just not choosing this, or like, what happened? So you bring up a great point. Um, I, I heard at least two or three things in it. One, by the way, we use Mercury as well for that okay. reason. Not only do they do the sweeps up to five million bucks, but also, you know, they, they pay something crazy like four or five percent on deposits. It's real money. Yeah. Um, so that's an important thing. But to your question of like, is it just as simple as like, did you enable the sweep thing? And so like, if you checked it, you're good. If you didn't, you're bad. Yeah. I mean, that should that that's almost uh, criminal that there could be a scenario where because uh, you forgot to check something that you are now having exposure. And I think that the fundamental issue with SVB, right, is that in the world of taking risk, which is what every single one of us does every single day and twice on Sunday, especially in the VC or founder community, where all we're doing is pricing risk continuously. Yep. And you start with, in the risk reward paradigm, you start from a position of risk-free rate. 
And that is your position of safety. That's where you know that you can go to sleep every night. That's your safe little space. And as you wander down the road of risk reward, at least you're taking a calculated bet. You're gonna make some fumbles. You're gonna win some, you're gonna lose some. You hope to win more than you lose, but you know the risk you're taking. And frankly, even if you lose, it was a conscious decision. The difference with SVB was that nobody thought they were taking risk. Yeah. Right. So only in hindsight being 2020, do we look back and say, oh, my God, 97 percent of that money was uninsured. That mm -hmm. is like a six year old understands that's crazy. Yeah. But how is it possible that we were that was a blind spot for all of us? And I think for me, you know, when I look at the world, it, it most of the time it makes sense to me. I might not have loved certain parts of it, but I can, I can really put myself into people's shoes and I can understand it, right? I can understand perspectives. But when you tell me, turns out that $200 billion of deposits were at risk, that is like a lightning bolt coming down from the Greek gods. <laughs> everything you thought you knew was wrong. And when that hits off in your brain, you are now repricing every single decision you have made mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. And that's what everybody did for 72 hours. Yep. It was exhausting and stressful and terrible. But in the silver lining, I think we're a little bit more resilient and anti-fragile coming out of it, hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, I do think there's still some anxiety from that feeling. Like people are still feel, even though it's been resolved, they're still feeling like, yeah. well, what else do I not know? What other <laughs> risk have I not priced into my life right now when the market is volatile? And, and the thing is like a lot, so a lot of things in the economy have a lag effect, right? So take like the Fed, hopefully in a, a two, 2 p.m. today, they're going to, you know, everyone's got their perspective on what's going to happen. Maybe they, let's just say they raise it by 25 bips, right? Or 25 basis points. Um, and so, but even those decisions have lag effects. There's not an immediate um, response to these decisions. So for example, back to the zombie banks, we knew about this. I was reading about, you know, the collateral being all these unrealized losses for 12 months. Yeah. It's the most obvious thing ever. Um, I mean, look at, for example, with commercial mortgage-backed securities, you have $270 billion of federally uninsured loans coming due this year. And guess who's the biggest owners of that community and yep. the local banks? Yep. So there are still, I wouldn't say that everything's resolved and we're all happy, you know, blue sky ahead. I think there's a ton of storm clouds what Silicon Valley Bank did was it was a bit of a splash of water in the face. And it's like everybody wake up um, and really make sure that, you know, continue, never get comfortable. Right. And yeah. really be careful and be thinking twice about this stuff there, you know, because there's there's a lot more stuff out there that hasn't made its way over yet. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the investors that I that I talked to that I would have loved to have as part of this episode um, but they can't speak publicly. So what, what, a lot of, what a lot of them said is like, yeah, we knew about this like 12, 18 months ago and we've been slowly planning for it and readjusting, you know, instead of having as much tenure, we've been readjusting down and sort of slowly selling it off as the rates were going up, right? Which makes sense. That makes sense that you they would have been doing that. So they're not in the situation. So the, the, most of our investors that I know don't, aren't super concerned about the banks that they interact with and have had influence over. But I think to your point, there's probably a lot of other banks where that wasn't the case. And, well, nobody and, and also to be clear, I mean, the I see SVB had two fundamental issues. One is kind of an easy one, which is it's also frustrating because they mismatch their short term deposits with long term securities. Right. 
And that's finance 101. You literally learn that in like the first day in freshman class. Don't do make that mistake. And I have full confidence they will never make that mistake because A, once you make a stupid mistake like that, you know, you won't repeat it. And look, I, I'll give them full credit. Like none of us were in the room. I'm sure there was a lot of context that went into that decision that gave mm -hmm. them a high conviction that this was a good bet. And I'm not blaming them for it. But also, plus the regulators said, hey, we're going to open up this discount window so that people can, you know, sell us their unrealized loss loans at par. So yep. that issue has been mitigated across the, the broader banking system. But the issue that still remains is this concentration risk, right? So even though banks have a way to have liquidity, and don't forget about the fact that last week, the, what is it, the Federal Home Loan Bank issued like $300 billion of loans in one week to create liquidity for banks, okay? So damn near catastrophe, thank God we avoided it, but still the risk that remains with SVB is concentration risk. The yep. fact that all of their founders and VCs suffer from groupthink because it's yep. one cohort. So that is a risk that is unique to them that they still are gonna have to address at some point. So I'm curious, did you, since you were an SVB customer did, and you switched to Mercury, is that what you said? Well, to be clear, so our last, my last startup banked with SVB. They were wonderful to work with, and that company still banks with SVB. And thank God their deposits were made whole. I personally bank with SVB, um, and thank God I was made whole too. My current company, the reason we chose Mercury was for a few reasons. One, because of the sweep thing that you brought up. Yeah. Two, because their interest rates are incredibly good. But actually, for what we do, um, you know, just quick ten seconds on my company. We are a, a modern digital loan origination system, which basically means that everything we do is highly automated APIs and, and this kind of stuff. So we needed a banking protocol that was truly best, best of the best. Right. Yep. And so a lot of the banks like the JP Morgans and the Silicon Valley banks, they just don't have the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, the way that a mercury and an increase in modern treasury and some of these latest and greatest technologies do. So I needed to be able to do things autonomously. Okay. And Mercury was just kind of a perfect solution for us. So were you already using Mercury before this happened? Yeah. For my current company, for, Nifty Gold, we were day one on Mercury. Again, okay. not because it's in no way uh, you know, a diss to SVB. Again, right. the people side are amazing. But our technology needs, I needed every single thing to be the most modern. You know, We were starting from scratch. So we weren't like re- this wasn't incremental innovation. This was kind of like white sheet start from scratch innovation, right? Same way like Tesla came along. They didn't like incrementally innovate from a Ford F-150. They literally just said, you know what? We got a whiteboard, dream big. How would you do it best? And yeah. so that's what, that was our philosophy towards mortgage was, I don't care how they've done it in the past. I want to be able to have a, a one day mortgage. And how do we do that? And a critical component of mortgage is obviously your banking system mm -hmm. and all the treasury management systems and whatnot. Okay. And so I was going to ask, I mean, I guess for your current business, you're not banking with SVB anyway, but how has this impacted you or how do you think it's going to impact other founders? Um, you know, the downstream effects of this. Well, it, it, we did have the small exposure in the sense that like, for example, we paid, you know, Rippling is our HL provider and we gave the money to Rippling and that was Friday morning. It, the timing could not have been worse. Right. Um, and um, it was granted it was only one payroll cycle. So we would have bounced back from that hit. But actually, quick plug for Rippling. 
they did a Herculean uh, response to this and they actually fronted $130 million of their clients' payroll money to advance it while the SVB nightmare got brought back. And they finally got recouped last week. But that is an incredible testament to just corporate responsibility. I mean, that is like world-class behavior, what they did. So, but yeah, for, for maybe 48 hours, we were sweating bullets that we were we lost a payroll cycle um, because obviously the most important vendor you have is making sure your own people get paid right everybody else is a second class to taking care of your people and so we had that exposure and there were other vendors too that are on the svb network so yeah if a bank goes down it's it's bad news bears you know mm-hmm. across the world yeah and luckily it didn't go down ultimately but i guess i'm wondering like what else is going to come from it especially as it relates to just the VC ecosystem in general, like getting access to venture capital money. Cause a lot of VCs are sitting on the sidelines right now. It seems like kind of just like waiting for this to get well, all Volatility and risk is generally clouds to, you know, quick and ambitious decision-making. So like anytime these spooks happen, you know, people keep their hand on their pocketbook. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, VCs have already been, um, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know, they've been on high alert because you have, again, you have to be paid for the risk. Mm-hmm. If you don't even know, if you can't calculate the risk you're taking, how do you price it? Exactly. Right? So the term sheet I'm going to give you as a VC is going to be way higher because of the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so all this is going to do is actually make them retrench even further. And that's is also why, why you right now you're seeing incredible volatility. I mean, the stock market is bouncing like a basketball. You know, interest rates are bouncing like a basketball. You know, there is so much volatility right now in the system and we need to get it out of the system right now. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. It's kind of annoying to me actually, because I think there's still a lot of really great companies out there and there's still a lot of dry powder that VCs have. And, you know, we have too. And, and I think it's just, everyone's trying to figure out where do things settle with the risk pricing, right? Like what, what should the term sheets look like? What's fair and reasonable at this point in time and deals aren't happening because I think no one has come to terms and figured that out really yet. I think a, a deeper layer to, to add to that is the fact that, you know, we're coming off the 2010 to 2020 chapter was, mm-hmm. was easy money, right? You had artifact, you QE, People are like, oh, there's no inflation until, of course, there wasn't a QA. <laughs> yep. but, you know, QA worked it, QE worked its way into uh, the system, propped up asset values. So the way that people were underwriting was comps on comps on comps. Mm-hmm. And everything was growth derived. So, hey, if you could grow, it didn't matter if you made money ever. Uh, we can IPO you just based on your incredible growth. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden that popped. And people are like, yeah, I don't know if growth alone is it. I think actually maybe we need to have a revenue story at some point, really profit. And so if you were minted in the 2010 to 2020 era, you need to now change your culture, which is not an easy thing to do. One of, I mean, just in dumb luck category here, we started in 2022 and EBITDA was very much part of people's vocabulary. And so when I think about business today, it might be a little bit more boring, but I actually think like profit and, you know, not so much exit strategy, because honestly, I, I have no clue what the exit strategy is. All I care about is building a sustainable business that's right. going to make money. And that could be that is our exit story. 
right? Yep. Is just be a profitable business. So for new companies, even though it, it sounds like you got to eat your vegetables right now, um, but I actually think that long term, that's a great thing because we no longer are operating with false assumptions, hope yep. certificates. Right? I couldn't, this I couldn't is agree. back to brass tacks. And luckily, like for us in our portfolio, we've always been very unit economics focused. And I think what you mean also just for other founders, like we invest in companies obviously don't have profit the day we invest in them, but we have we can see the unit economics and the path very clearly for them to get to profit very quickly. It's not like the sort of thing where that's an unproven those are not unproven metrics, I guess, is my point. And, you know, Absolutely. in order to get to some level of scale, they're not going to have profit on day one. But we, if, as long as we know that they can get there, then that's when we'll invest. And I think companies that think about their businesses like that are now being rewarded, to, the, to your point. And that's just the mindset of venture now, yeah. which is good. Yeah. And I, I think when, when I was raising uh, institutional rounds, for our last company, I remember, you know, surveying founders out there and stuff. And there's kind of an East Coast and West Coast venture mentality. The West Coast guys are definitely storytellers, big multiples, big comms, grow, grow at all costs. You know, it's kind of think of SoftBank, right? And the WeWorks yep. and, the, and that kind of stuff. Um, the East Coast guys, New York, Boston, D.C., they were always grounded in unit economics, right? So um, which is. If, if, if you have a choice, you know, like the West Coast money is like more spicy <laughs> and big. But I think the pendulum is is coming into your favor because what has always been your mandate is now the broader mandate. Right. Very much a good thing for, I think, VC as a whole, but also for, for people that have been, had yeah. that philosophy from day one. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I'm wondering, too, is like, although SVB is still saying that they are issuing like new venture debt. And you, do you guys have venture debt? Just curious. I don't no, think we, we don't. You know, venture debt. I, I should be careful when I say about debt because I, I have a company that issues debt. Right. Yep. So it's neither good nor bad. It's a tool. And the question is, how are you using that tool? And generally, debt is to lever return. So venture debt worked really well when you pair it with say a series A, because just simple math, if I take 10 million of equity and 10 million of debt, I just got 20 million bucks, but only $10 million of dilution. Everybody's happy with that formula. Um, but, and, and if the mandate is grow at all cost, and there's gonna be a series B and a series C, which are going to, are willing to underwrite just growth metrics. Yep. That is a formula that you can rinse and replicate for 10 years. In the new world where unit economics matter and all of a sudden debt is standing in front of your profit, you have to make some really hard decisions about is how do I use this tool appropriately to invest in something where the return is greater than the cost of that money. Yep. And that's, I think, a new perspective that, um, again, it's kind of boring and, and wonky and stuck in Excel spreadsheets and less on the fun stuff of growing a business. But it's more responsible and it, as a as an ecosystem of VC and founders that actually sets us all up for better future success so that we're not taking these blind spot risks like we have been for the last 10 years. Yeah, I actually couldn't agree more. But on the on the flip side, it's sort of like not great for the founders who exist today who have already and the, and the, and the VCs who exist today who have been making bets based on the idea that this venture debt is going to exist and continue in their 
in their, uh, you know, in their investment thesis with the companies they've invested in. And if it goes away, then it's like, what's going to happen? Either, the, either those companies have to change their mindset to your point and be and figure out their unit economics in a different way, or the VCs have to come in with more money, which means there's just going to be a lot less money to go around. There, there's no question it's very hard. And I, I don't envy their position at all because, you know, organizational change, particularly at scale, is really hard to do. But yeah. the, the silver lining is that change, you know, if you have the right perspective on being, you know, continuous learning, right, and, and use every even crisis as an opportunity, um, this, this could be the wake up call that, that these companies need to actually survive. So it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It'll be super hard. But the net result at the end of the day is better, stronger companies, which is what the economy needs. Um, yeah, I, I and, and honestly, the way humans are and, and up, up on the front of this line, a lot of times we don't change until we're forced to change. Mm -hmm. Right. We're just lazy. And again, I'm, I'm putting myself in the front of the bus there. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, you know, it's changed. But then when you tell me, hey, man, the, the house is burning down, you got to pick your stuff up mm -hmm. and run. OK, you got my attention now. I'm, I'm running. So, yeah, we're already seeing it. Actually, there's a lot of companies we look at that I looked at 12 months ago. They were in a different place. They've made tremendous changes. They've gone through rifts. They've done all sorts of things and they figured things out in a way that makes them much more interesting companies to me. So yeah. some um, of the best companies out there, they're very famous that, you know, what they thought was day one, their their product, they evolved to because and honestly, you know, and again, I'll, I'm the first one to admit this. When you start a company, it's a collection of assumptions, right? And you hope that mo most of your assumptions are generally directionally accurate. But the, the truth is they were wild ass guesses. And mm -hmm. so half a wrong, half a right. And yep. you hope the ones that are right are going to propel you forward. But if your eyes and ears are open and you're, you're really absorbing all this information, I always like to say that I don't discriminate between good and bad information. It's just information. I just want it so I can make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. So if that's your perspective, it's okay to evolve. I mean, companies yeah. are people, people evolve. So it's all good. It's just hard work. Yep. And you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves to do it. Yep. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm also curious. Um, I know we were coming up on time, but I want to ask you a couple other things. In particular, like as it relates to your business, what's happening with with debt and with interest rates and how that impacts sort of like the borrow to lend model that we see. We've invested in other companies similar to yours and and that's a proven model that works really well. But I wonder, like, where where are the impacts of this happening in that business model from a positive or a negative side that you're seeing? Absolutely. Um, there's. It's interesting. So when we started this company, uh, I literally was in front of a whiteboard, call it like November 21, which funny enough was plus or minus the timeline around when SVB decided that they had high conviction that a 1.7% yield was was a good long term safe bet. <laughs> My bet was that we were at artificially low rates. The average interest rate in the United States for existing homes was 3.3%. And I knew that the long, long uh, historical average was 5%. And that they had been artificially low and it was going to bounce back up. So when we started this company, interest rates were 2.8. And we made a strong conviction bet that interest rates would go above 3.3%. And the reason that's important is that if they stayed under 3.3%, you would just do what's called a cash out refinance, which, by the way, is what 50% of mortgage companies' businesses were. Mm -hmm. Important word, were. 
when interest rates went above 3.3, it no longer made economic sense to take out a, a cash out refi, which favors home equity, which is sort of the, their contracyclical to one another. So that was a strong conviction bet. And it's not that we were smart. It was just literally looking at what's the long term historical average. But that being said, there's a Goldilocks zone really for uh, life and business. And as long as rates are above 3.3%, we're good. The problem is when they shot up to 7%, which nobody, myself included, expected, that was such a quick, rapid, incredible rise. It was the fastest rise in 50 yeah. years. Yeah. And we were quoting people for loans and people were like, oh, I thought home equities were at 2%. And I was like, oh, they were two <laughs> yeah. years ago, yep. right? And so that's too high. So the Goldilocks zone for us is when rates are between 3.5% and about 6.5%. And the problem is that the Fed is keep pushing, 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 which is definitely causing heartburn for us, as well as the, the rest of the lending community. Because there's a breaking point at which, you know, you're not going to borrow money at astronomically high rates. But our product and service is also convenience of time. So rather than going to a credit union and spending four months on a $50,000 home equity loan, you can literally do one in your phone today. And I could literally RTP wire that money to you right now on this phone call. Yeah. So that's the, the watershed innovation we've done is to really bring liquidity to what's traditionally an illiquid asset class. And I guess talk to me about that Goldilocks zone that you just mentioned, like, why is that the zone? Is that just consumer behavior that people start to think above 6%? It's just too expensive. I don't want to do it, basically. Absolutely. Because like, you know, when you're thinking about like, what are the primary use cases for, for a home equity loan? It's it's either uh, renovating a home, buy another property, debt consolidation, putting a three kid through college, sort of big life events, right? That That are bigger than what your checking account has. And typically they're, they're for good purpose, but there's also a breaking point. So like, let's say, you know, you're, you, you want to redo a kitchen and bath for your family, right? Well, you know, at 7%, sure. I'd take that loan at 15%. I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't need it. The kitchen works perfectly fine today. Right now. We don't really need to take that money. Um, so yeah. I think that obviously influences the personal decision and then it cascades across the entire, you know, ecosystem. Yeah. Do you think it has the same impact for other types of loans that are less, I would say, like, um, like I can push out my kitchen reno two years, but maybe I can't push out, you know, going back to school and getting my degree or. Absolutely. Uh, so know. when you have high stake decisions that are very time dependent, one of our biggest use cases we've seen, uh, particularly um, because of the speed at which we can originate, is people are getting a nifty door loan to buy a second property. And what the, the use case is actually that they have an existing home uh, where all their equity is. They um, win a new contract on the next house, but all their money is tied here. And they literally have you know no time and they need to show proof of funds and they need to close in a week or two or three to buy yep. the new house. And they call us in total panic. And I'm like, yeah, chill, we got this. And like, really? <laughs> like, yeah. And boom, you get the money. And literally the reviews we're getting from both realtors and the, the homeowners is like, that was unbelievable because I called the credit union and it was four months to get this loan, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So in that instance, yeah, they need it and they need it, they need it quick. 
but for the more discretionary spend, there's there's a, a tip over point where you're just like, honey, let's yep. we don't need that right now. Yeah, and I, I also think there's tailwinds because I think a lot of companies or people, companies, whatever the thing may be that the loan is needed for, you, you know, money is tight now. So there's just not as much money, and people who may have not needed a loan before need one now for different things. And yeah. Um, you know, and maybe they thought they had, they had money somewhere else, but now that's gone or less than they were expecting it to be. And so I think the loan market is going to see demand just because of that in general too. Um, You had tremendous cash savings during COVID because of everything from work from home, not commuting, not having to buy suits anymore. Everyone's in their PJs, everyone's getting PPP money and like, you know, helicopter money. And it all went into, you know, crypto deposits, Robinhood, all those good things. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden it dried up. And mm-hmm. so you have this cash poor, equity rich cohort of homeowners. And the problem is that, you know, liquidity, as we just saw with SVB, is really, really important. Cash is king. So, you know, people bemoan cash and say, never keep your money in cash because of inflation and whatnot. Yeah, but you know what? In a crisis, when you really need it, there's nothing better than cash. So um, people that need the cash, we provide the fastest and best access to it. So also going back to that borrow to lend model I was talking about, I think for other founders, like new founders who are are creating new businesses in that space, not competitive with you, but just, you know, in general in the borrow to lend space, do you think this is having an impact on their ability to get, um, you know, credit facility, like to get that, to borrow that money to lend it and get those term sheets anymore? I mean, fundamentally, the cost of money went up as a whole. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're taking a home equity loan, a small business loan, venture debt, a mortgage, you know, infrastructure debt, doesn't matter where. Money costs more today. So as the first reaction to that is, ugh, you know, all the the fun times are kind of behind us. But all it really means is we need to be a little bit more adults and make more conscious, deliberate, you know, thoughts of is this a good use of of money? It 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 lends itself more towards true investments and less towards consumer spend. Because mm-hmm. like if 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 I can borrow money at zero percent, I mean, my God, you know, I'm going to Disney World, I'm I'm having a fun time or whatever, whatever floats your boat. And by the way, that's not Disney. I just <laughs> need that you're going thing. to Disney World tomorrow. Um, you are. No, no, no. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, the cost of money went up. So that's true, particularly for raising money. And I will say for other fintech founders, because I I struggle with this right now. Are you really a, are you a fintech company? Or are you a lender? Because those are actually two fundamentally different businesses. Mm-hmm. Yep. And unfortunately, we fall between the cracks. Like if there was a Venn diagram, we are exactly where those two circles meet, right? Yep. We're not pure fintech, nor are we pure lender. We're a hybrid, um, which now I need to raise money for both our operating company as a venture and raise money as a financial asset manager. Mm-hmm. So that's effectively twice the the effort and both of those buckets of cash have gone through the roof yeah 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 and i guess like for other founders not only is it more expensive to get those large credit facilities but i'm i also i don't know this is just what i'm starting to see and probably curious if you're seeing it too but it just seems like they're harder to come by in general like banks and financial institutions just aren't handing them out so readily anymore not only are they more expensive but they are just not handing them out as 
as frequently. Absolutely. And, and again, back to like the lag effect and the blind spots, right? So if, if you're talking to anybody, and this is true just even in a person-to-person -person scenario where, you know, you might have a good conversation or a bad conversation with somebody, but you actually don't, you have no context of what's happening in their personal lives at that time, right? Maybe they just came out of a really bad situation and, and they're taking a little bit out on you. Well, same thing is with the, with the bank or a VC. It's like, hey, I've got this really awesome company and great idea and these are great economic terms and they're just like nodding politely and listening to you mm -hmm. meanwhile their house is burning oh yeah so oh, yeah. they're literally saying like i can't wait to get off this call because yeah. i literally have this hold to maturity securities where my bank's insolvent i've got a hundred waiting phone calls to make mm -hmm. And you have no context to that, right? So you're just like, wait, I wonder why they didn't think that this was the best pitch they'd ever heard. And yep. it's because like on relative terms, they got way bigger priorities right now. So everybody right now is looking at their tea leaves and mm -hmm. repricing risk and there's stormy clouds everywhere. So it's like return to peace, keep it simple, borrow as little money as you can right now. Now is not a great time to be raising money. Yeah, it really isn't, unfortunately. Um, and hopefully that changes soon, but I don't know how soon that's really going to change. And I think especially for this bar to lend model, those type of businesses are, if you don't already have the facilities, then it's going to be a big challenge. I don't think we're going to see a lot of new companies coming into that space. Yeah. I will say though, obviously in the hardest of times, you know, if you can forge yourself in the fire right now, these are the companies that are going to really right. have an enduring uh, business model because in the best of times, it's always hard to ascribe, was your success because all boats rise in a rising tide or are you just so special, right? In hard times, it's like, okay, the uh, that's, where it, that's where the rubber really hits the road. So I don't, I think, you know, the founder uh, life cycle is like when you identify that problem solution and it becomes your maniacal passion to solve it mm -hmm. and make the world a better place, you don't really care what the Fed funds rate is. You don't really care about all that. It's noise. It's certainly challenge. But I think for a lot of founders, you know, we I eat I eat uh, you know obstacles, and it becomes my fuel of of, yeah. of motivation. So I I agree, and I actually like I I'm excited about this because I think now is the time where like these these really incredible founders are going to shine, and it's going to be very clear for for everyone including their own businesses, where before they've been fighting this fight out with all of these sort of like FOMO driven competitors that aren't that don't aren't going to figure it out like they are. So there's a really great opportunity for the best founders to rise and, and also for the best investors to make money, because th this is the time when investors make the most money is right now and finding those deals and yeah, pricing I mean, if, them correctly from an investor. perspective, Yeah. From an investor perspective, if you're underwriting, you know, the unit economics and so you're reasonably downside protected in the sense that there's a very sober business yeah. model behind it. And this is a low point in the cycle. So it's kind of all rosy because we are going to get through these storm clouds. There's no question. I mean, we have a very yeah. resilient you know, economy and people and entrepreneurs and we're, we're going to get through these things. So it's not all doom and gloom. It's just it's raining out right now. We know there's the sun's going to come out tomorrow. Exactly. So making smart bets today is, I would argue, on, on a risk adjusted basis, there's no better time to make investments. Exactly. Yep. That's how I feel. So to me, it's all positive. I mean, it's going to be a time, a period of austerity, and it's going to be harder, I think, for everyone. It's going to be a harder time than it was the last few years. 
but I'm I'm extremely optimistic about it. I think there's a lot of opportunity to be had, and uh, and I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. Any other, I guess, like I would say, final uh, final thoughts. Uh, no real final thoughts. I'll say, you know, I think in all the noise I've said, like sort of return to peace and keep it simple. But I mean, that those are really like, if you're a continuous learner and you're just always fighting for simplicity, I think that's like the one thing that like lets me sleep at night is just like, you know, the more simple you can get it, you, you just really find that, that inner peace. And it's true both on a personal level as also on like a corporate side. Um, so Totally. We'll, we'll all get through this. Simplicity is is genius. It's the yes. it's for sure. So I um, I think that's great. But thank thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time. I think this was my pleasure. Incredible. Thank you for having me. Audience is going to love this one, and um, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.